Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and I want to welcome you to the show today. You know that we are right here on KTRL 90.5 FM every Sunday at noon. You can also listen at tarletonradio.com where the show is live streamed, or you can catch us after the show on SoundCloud. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow, as well as follow our Facebook page to get related articles uh, to the issues that we cover each week. We are continuing our series that we've had over the past six months and focusing on critical issues related to the pandemic. And of course, with the nature of the show and our focus, connecting it with governance, with policy, uh, with uh, with how government is responding, what are the, the critical needs out there, what some of it looking at the past, how, how historically have we engaged with specific issues. And so, as you know, we've covered education, we've looked at public health, we've, we've engaged with a lot of different issues related to the pandemic. Uh, today, we turn to a topic that is certainly not last or least. Uh, in this, uh, and that is the issue of mental health. Uh, This is an issue that I've wanted to uh, engage with in this series for a while, uh, partly because we hear a lot in the news about vaccines. It was vaccine development, now vaccine distribution, about uh, policies to prevent the spread of the virus, focused on uh, safety, public health safety. But one area that we've not addressed, and we don't really see a lot of attention, at least in mainstream media, are our mental health issues. I know I've seen some advertising on TV directing people to counseling services and hotlines and things like this. But in terms of in-depth engagement with this on this level, uh, we've not seen as as much of that as I think we probably should or we we need to. And I think also this is probably an issue that's going to come back and be a significant focus uh, once we have the pandemic under control. Uh, I think we'll see some of the results. If you may recall, we did have an episode that was focused on domestic violence and how the numbers were changing related to that uh, because people are not as out and engaged uh, in society as much, uh, people not seeing issues or evidence of issues that uh, are going on. So to focus on mental health, I welcome to the show today, Dr. Ryan Foster, who is an associate professor of counseling here at Tarleton State University. Uh, He's also a psychotherapist in private practice uh, in Fort Worth and a licensed professional counselor supervisor uh, with a certified humanistic Santre uh, therapist um, or certification, I should say. Uh, He has experience here in providing counseling in community agencies, elementary schools, and college uh, counseling centers uh, for, for about 15 years. And he's also been a director of a nonprofit community counseling agency uh, and a college counseling center. And so he brings that experience to us today in discussing this issue and really looking at, uh, first of all, identifying the, the, the types of mental health issues that we see coming to the forefront uh, during the pandemic. But first, Dr. Foster, welcome to On Politics. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Well, I'd like to just to start there, because I think if people aren't exposed to this in their own families, and of course, we've all struggled in different ways with the pandemic, but but uh, mental health challenges are quite significant when you're in an environment that creates the, the social, uh, emotional uh, challenges, physical challenges that, that we see all around us. What what are some of the prominent things that we're seeing uh, as a result of, of the pandemic and its impact? Yeah, well, I can talk about it in kind of several different layers. The the first layer, I'll just start with sort of the individual layer, which is it's the impact of the pandemic on any individual's mental health really is variable. We're seeing that those with pre-existing mental health vulnerabilities, some of them are doing okay. Actually, You know, um, uh, well, I'll use an example. My wife is a psychotherapist, too, and she sees a lot of adolescents and some of the adolescents who had to shift to virtual school uh, who had pre-existing like uh, diagnosable anxiety issues, things like that, were relieved that they didn't have to face the kinds of challenges that come up for people with with those kinds of mental health vulnerabilities 
others, of course, this is having a greater impact. The, the moderator that seems to be key for any one individual struggling with mental health uh, and its impact uh, in terms of the pandemic is resilience. And that, that tends to be true when we have any kind of crisis or trauma event, which the pandemic, I mean, is a textbook crisis and trauma event. And so it really has to do with, um, on an individual level, how much resilience is inherent to each person. So we're seeing sort of, you know, uh, we don't have a pattern in terms of a person who has these disorders is doing worse than others. The other moderator uh, is um, social class. And that's something that Typically, we don't like to talk about, but it's true. Those who are underprivileged uh, or those who were sort of on the borderline and have lost, lost their job or, you know, uh, for example, uh, women have been impacted probably more than men because they tend to be even in the most sort of ideal, equal two-parent household position, the, the mother tends to take on a greater load. So, you know, it also depends on positioning, role in the family. Privilege has a lot to do with it. Race obviously has a lot to do with it. From a, a broader uh, point of view, access to care in the beginning of the pandemic, access to care was virtually shut off. Right. So places like your community agencies, like MHMR, places like that, uh, they virtually stopped seeing a lot of their clients. They had to quickly uh, shift to telephone counseling and those that had access to uh, already had sort of access to virtual or tele telehealth means shifted to that. But still, there was a very limited capacity. And really, just now we're seeing sort of community agencies you know, kind of finally being able to to do these things virtually in a way that works for clients. But you still have, you know, like people who live in rural counties, if they don't have good Internet, how is telehealth going to make a difference? Right. So so even even that sort of flexibility is uh, is really challenging for a lot of people, especially, of course, here in Texas, where we have. You know, uh, you know, I mean, uh, so many people who who aren't, you know, living in Fort Worth where I am and able to pivot personally to to a telehealth environment. But the thing is, um, for practitioners like me who are in private practice, uh, I don't mean this to sound um, heartless, but business is good which means the pandemic has actually given mental health practitioners an opportunity to demonstrate the importance of taking care of self. And so, yeah, there have been challenges, but there's also been opportunities for, for mental health practitioners to, to kind of demonstrate that, yeah, we're actually needed. We're needed as much as physicians or the, the kind of healthcare that you tend to think of. And so in some ways it's lifted a bit of a taboo um, um, for the mental health profession. Well, that, that's good to hear in that that part, because we know and in, in just my experience in my own family and so forth of addressing certain issues, how uh, how how critical that is to, to get away from some of those either stigmas or uh, a fear of, of of accessing those kinds of services in order to help bring a level of, of stability and, and, and functionality and, you know, families and individuals. I, I had a, a question, you know, you're talking about some of the challenges being uh, a geography, you know, people who live in rural areas that, that may not have the capacity uh, to pursue um, uh, care that they need. Uh, but I, I was wondering too, with so much shifting to digital uh, with using zoom or, or even telephone and so forth. But there, there are some types of, of therapies that engage with those that have uh, certain mental health issues and challenges. Uh, at least my understanding, I'm kind of asking is that, okay, uh, am I right or wrong here that, that really that kind of personal engagement uh, is necessary, not just to evaluate, but in terms of 
of, of that, the relational aspect of it. I, I may not be using the right terminology here, but I'm wondering what the impact is there. Because again, I know you're saying that, that access, you know, and certainly uh, agencies moving to uh, the use of, of online platforms and being able to reconnect where they, they weren't for a period of time. But, but even that, I think, or I understand, has its limitations. It can. And what we're finding is sometimes it depends on, um, well, it depends a lot on the practitioner. Uh, we can start there and the practitioner's comfort. Um, a lot of us, I mean, I was someone who had never practiced telehealth ever before the pandemic. I was, uh, you know, I was a staunch in-person face-to-face sort of practitioner. Many of the people I know are the, were the same way. And it was sort of something that, you know, was like, can I even do this? And I was able to, and a lot of people I know were able to shift uh, pretty easily because the platforms already existed, actually. You know, the telehealth counseling, I mean, this stuff has been out there for for a lot of years and the, uh, and so it's been refined. It's just that, yeah, you're right. We psychotherapists tend to think of the importance of the therapeutic relationship and that there is something to the in-person experience that can, that, uh, we may not be able to capture. I, I don't want, I don't want to put like a black and white box around it. Um, what I've found is that many of my clients are doing fine on telehealth. They really are because one piece of this is safety. And if a client is in a safe environment, and sometimes that means right now, what it means for a lot of folks who are taking the pandemic seriously means at home, right? So actually, if I were to be seeing people face to face right now, I may be introducing an amount of risk that that they just don't want to face and me either, to be honest with you, I don't want, I don't want to take the risk to see people face to face. I will say that, you know, um, here at Tarleton, um, in our counseling program, as we're training students, this has given us an opportunity to expose them to this platform. And it's, it's giving folks like me in my faculty role, in my teaching role, an opportunity to see what's really valuable and, and how, to, how to adapt. And I think that's really what's happening is that people are adapting, clients are adapting. Is it ideal? I mean, I don't know. For some clients, I really like it. Um, so there is sort of this intuitive thing that, that, that in my opinion, can only happen in a person-to-person contact. And I'll say for my practice, as soon as it's safe to go back, I'm going to go back for the clients who are okay with that too, because there is sort of this thing, you know, I mean, there's limitations. For example, you and I are speaking over Zoom. I can't see you below, you know, your upper chest. Well, I depend a lot on nonverbal signals from a client and a client depends on a lot of that when they're observing me too, right? So, you know, there are things that happen in a person's body language that we can't quite capture. And those are, you know, that's somewhere around 70% of communication is nonverbal. So there, you know, it's sort of a, it, it's more complex than saying, well, it's better face-to-face always. I, right. I, before this, I would have said, absolutely. I would have been, you know, very opinionated about it right now. I'm like, I'm not sure. I think it really is one of those things that depends on the person. And if you have an issue of access, you know, that issue of, well, if they can access your office, right? If I'm working in a community agency and the person has to take a bus, but I'm in a city that doesn't have public transportation, well, some therapy is better than none, if that makes sense. So it, right. it's really a complex set of set of factors. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. More, much more than we can. We try to give a lot more depth with the time that we have on, on the show, but there yeah. are things like this that are just so broad and so complex. And I guess one related issue in, in, in talking about the status of the, of the pandemic before we look to uh, uh, how this is being addressed or, or could be addressed in terms of policy and governance and so on. So we, we heard the news that uh, coming out of the, the current uh 
presidential administration that some are concerned about the stretching even further now with the variants through the summer, maybe even the next fall, before we can see this moving back to uh, what we are probably going to be calling the new normal because we're not we're not ever going to go back to where we were before. Um, but what what does that uh, what's the impact there, especially um, I mean, you mentioned resilience and I, and I know that that's a huge part of the, the answer here. But on the other side of it, uh, people look for the light at the end of the tunnel. They're looking for hope, you know, that we're going to be out of this before too much longer. Uh, and that that certainly has an effect on on all of us. But in when we're talking about the, the, the complexity complexity of these issues of mental health. Uh, what do you, what, what kind of impact do you see the longer that this, this goes on? Is that, um, uh, is that something that we need to be watching for certain things or, uh, uh, are we going to still be seeing, uh, you know, variations here in terms of how resilient people are, um, or are, are we going to start seeing where just people, have had enough. I mean, they, they, they just can't deal with it. Uh, they've, they've tried, they've tried, and maybe they've been successful to a point, but now, wow, you know, another 12 months of this, uh, what, what does that bring into the d- dynamics in, in, in your work and what you're doing? Well, um, I think in some senses, we're starting to see that people have in some ways had enough. Now, the degree to which they behave on that emotion differs, right? So people who, you know, uh, are loosening up on wearing masks and, you know, freely going to out to eat every night. You know, there's there's that. But I think the bigger deal is, you know, what I what I would con- what I might consider this is a generational trauma uh, similar to the Great Depression. And I've been thinking about that a lot because uh, my grandmother, who's 94. Uh, my entire life, she, you know, she grew up during that time. Her, her father ran a junkyard. And so they actually were set up to, to make it through the day-to-day realities of the great depression pretty well. And this was up in Topeka, Kansas. And, um, but you know, they, they still, they suffered, uh, they made it through, but the, the thing, the practices that were instilled in my grandmother at a very young age, she still lives by, you know, I mean, there's, there's this funny story about her. That's just so, uh, typical of how she's lived her life, which is my parent. This was a number of years ago. My parents brought her over some long John silvers. She loves the long John silvers. And, and I think it came with some biscuits or something. Well, she ate one biscuit, but she decided to save the other one. She froze the biscuit and then probably six months later remembered, oh, I've got that biscuit from Long John Silver. She thought it out and it was the greatest thing. It's like the greatest meal she'd ever had. Right. She called my parents up to tell them about this biscuit. And that's what I think about, like. The longer term impacts of this, um, and I think the nature of the ambiguity, when is this going to end? That's sort of what you're bringing up. When is this going to end? And everyone's experiencing that. We just don't know. And what what you're saying is that um, to make people feel better, it's almost like the institutions that, that we're involved in tries to give us a timeline, right? Uh, uh, timeline when it's going to get better, but it, like you said, keeps getting kind of pushed back and, you know, human nature is not to, is not to deal very well with ambiguity. We don't like it. We like clarity. Um, and so it, it, I just think it's going to have a broader impact that we really don't know and we won't know, but I think it's going to impact how people view the world for sure. Certainly. Yeah. Well, so speaking of, of people who do not like ambiguity, and that is people who make policy, uh, when we look at governance and policymakers, they want a, a very clear problem or challenge, and they want a, a range of solutions of which they can then, you know, battle it out in the political arena to, uh, to, 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 to get answers. And, and so I think that that makes this challenging in a number of ways. Uh, the other part of it, I think in that you brought 
brought up here, and this is where I'd like to to get your your insight as well, is that in looking at that way, uh, at that way, it this is not so easily defined. You know, you're talking about resilience. You're talking about it varying from one person to the next. Uh, so there's not necessarily a clear objective to say, okay, if we spend X amount of dollars on this particular program, we can uh, address these concerns. It's it's really not that. And I, and, and I would say, and again, your expertise here can correct me, but that is mental health in general. I mean, I, uh, to me, it would seem like that, that, that area it, you, you you deal with such a wide range of, of challenges and issues that that when it comes to the policymaking uh, arena, that it it becomes very challenging in that way. And um, I don't on that side of it, since you you know the work that you've had in community agencies and things like that. What what have you seen that has been most effective uh, in in this? Is it and 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 has have you seen that challenge between that kind of work in in mental health agencies? And, and services in relation to policymakers trying to make decisions about this. I mean, I, on the on the surface, on the surface, it seems like just an issue of, of funding. You get funding to mental health agencies, and then let them engage with the broader range of a uh, range of challenges and so forth. But again, policymakers don't always work that way. So I didn't know if you had what where your experience in this or how you perceive this in navigating this, not just now, but, but going forward, because I think we're going to have to give attention to this. There, there, there are, there is going to be the need for more resources to be able to meet the needs that are out there. Yeah. And uh, you know, in thinking about this, what struck me is really it, it it does come back to it's the economy, stupid, because I think what policymakers tend not to understand or maybe they haven't been exposed to this idea, but mental health has a direct impact on the economy. Right. So when I go, you know, um, it, it well, I don't go to the grocery store in person, but if I did. And I go to Kroger or H-E-B. Y'all are lucky to have an H-E-B there. Um, If I went to H-E-B and I run into the grocery store worker who's suffering and get a bad customer service experience because, you know, they're stressed, they're anxious, they're depressed, and they, you know, take it out on me. Um, I'm not going to look beyond what's going on for them. I'm going to look right at how are they impacting my customer experience? So then I'm going to make a decision maybe, well, I'm not going back there again. Right. So it is kind of this idea of people's mental health has a direct impact on how the economy functions on how society functions. And the fact of the matter is in a state like Texas, I mean, we're usually at the bottom maybe slightly above Mississippi when it comes to mental health funding and quality of mental health care. And so the, 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 the role of the government, if we're kind of talking about what, what can govern, what role can policymakers play in mental health? It's, it's to really understand that mental health is more than about you know, impacting someone on the individual level, it's a societal issue. And it's just important, just as important as physical health. Um, and, uh, it, you know, mental health care agencies, especially in Texas, they're used to not getting money. They're, you know, for a number of years, uh, you know, for decades, um, the community agencies have had to, you know, they basically operate off of grant funding, but even those are limited at the federal level. Historically, NIMH has had a very limited amount of money for, for grant funding. And typically it has to revolve around pretty high level research where a, a community agency you know, has to have the capacity to support things like, you know, NMH typically is interested in things like brain scans and, you know, things like that, that seem disconnected. They're not disconnected, but, but an agency has to have the capacity built in already to do those things. So it is a monetary issue, but it's, but I think, and I think the more we can see it that way, 
the more impact we're going to have on policymakers. In, in Texas, as you mentioned, you know, we, we have been uh, challenged in this area in terms of state funding. I mean, when you when you operate at the lowest per capita spending of any state government in the country, there are things and, and policymakers will admit this. Our legislators will say, look, we can't fund everything. We can't pay for everything. But I've noticed always on the health side. So if we're talking about public health. We're talking about uh, uh, access to health care. And of course, the mental health issue is is part of that. Um, There's always been this, this focus instead of it being a, an economic issue, like, like you're saying, and looking at how much work people miss or their engagement with people that, that they're providing services for uh, it's been looked at as well. These are issues that um, uh, nonprofits, charities, uh, other other groups uh, can can address, but but when we look at the numbers, the percentage of that is is so small. The percentage, of, and, and part of that, I think, too, in my research on this, has been that as those areas of healthcare, mental health, and so forth have become more complex, the those those groups have less capacity uh, to be able to do that. And I, and I think we're we may with this pandemic be starting to see that with even our our government agencies that that funding has not been there to keep at a level or, or beyond a level to, to have the capacity to navigate something like this. Uh, and, and so that to me, I mean, I, and I'm, I'm not someone that's fully integrated into that, but that in looking at government services and what's been provided. And, and, and I wonder if that, uh, the long-term effect of that is just going to be very apparent going forward. I'm not sure that it's on the radar of our state legislature that's meeting now, but uh, can we wait two years uh, until it meets again to, to address things like that? Um, I don't know if you, if, if that is an accurate assessment or not uh, in, in terms of, uh, of even government agencies, but this, this idea that we rely on non-governmental organizations and, and so on to carry the, 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 the load of this to me seems uh, no longer feasible in that, that, that again, that capacity, capacity and complexity of some of these issues that we're dealing with uh, just deserve, they need more, they need more attention. Well, they do. And, you know, I mean, <clears throat> It's kind of hard because, uh, you know, as I said, this is this is a, you know, sort of a crisis and a trauma, a shared trauma. Mm-hmm. And typically in crisis intervention from a mental I'm just speaking from a mental health profession, what we're trying to take a client to. And in this case, we're sort of the client, the, the system of people is the client here. We're, you know, it's in a state of disequilibrium. And so what we're trying to do is take the pragmaticist steps to get people to a state of equilibrium. And I think that's what you're seeing here from a public health perspective. You know, we're trying to get people vaccinated. We're trying to get people, we're still trying to get people to wear masks. You know, we're, uh, but, uh, you know, we're trying to stabilize things, not to mention the economy and jobs and all those things. We're trying to seek a sense of stability but what's being lost in that, right? And I think that's what you're saying is, are we going to lose some of the momentum we have in recognizing the mental health issues that come along? And then in two years, you know, I mean, uh, policymakers have a rather short-term memory. So in two years, is this is this push uh, or sense of motivation going to be lost? And, you know, Oh, oh. I, I don't I don't have a sense of it. You know, I just don't know. Right. Yeah. Yes. Well, as political scientists, we're, we're on my part of we try not to predict the future, but we we look at the past, you know, and see what those patterns are and, and 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 try to understand, you know, how how this is operated within the political culture that we have. I, I think a, a, a related question uh, to this would be uh, what what role do you see that that government can play uh, in addition to, to funding and resources, but we're looking at uh, community agencies. You were talking about another variable in this is, is socioeconomic level. Um, and so we know access and you know insurance, those kinds of things, being able to access quality care. Uh, but but what in, in looking at this and in, in, in the, the, 
the kinds of, uh, of, of support that are needed. Uh, do you see anything that, that could be in the policy arena that uh, would apply that, that maybe experiences that you've had either in private or public work that show, hey, th- this is effective. Uh, a lot, and I'll, I'll just give you a, a, a little explanation here. Um, a lot of times when we're looking at state and local government, it's the it's the ability of say either the federal or the state government to to get the resources down to the community level, and and then let experts and professionals in that community look at the variables and the challenges and try to adapt that. Uh, We're not very good at that uh, in Texas, uh, partly because of the limit on resources. But I don't know if that approach uh, is is something that that should be looked at. And if you have some practical experiences that that kind of connect with that and show that, okay, this is something that we we see working or that we know works. We just need that flexibility and resources to do it. Well, in terms of public mental health, you know, 40, 45 years ago, the Community Mental Health Act was passed. And uh, that essentially took mental health care, public mental health care from being, uh, you know, sort of institutionalized to passing it on to really local or regional control. Right. So that's where, you know, for example, in Texas, we have the what are typically called the MHMRs. Right. <laughs> and um, and the idea was, you know, not everyone with a mental health issue needs to be institutionalized. Uh, um, the communities know how to care for their community best and things of that nature. Well, well you also saw, of course, then. Uh, reduction in funding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, at this point, I think, I think the, the viewpoint has been uh, a crisis intervention model, right? Short-term counseling, even if it's outpatient, short-term counseling, you know, people who have really uh, chronic mental health issues, you know, we basically, you know, people call the police or, you know, and we know those sorts of issues that happen about, you know, assigning people who aren't mental health trained to deal with mental health issues that they shouldn't be having to deal with. So I think part of it is transitioning from this idea of, of focusing on only on intervention, right? Only when things are bad for people and shifting to preventative measures, right? Uh, how do we, how do we um, improve mental health access for children in schools? How do we improve mental health uh, knowledge and education? I mean, that's part of it too, is that it is sort of a mysterious thing. Right. It's a mental health is complex and mysterious to, to most people, really. And to therapists, too, by the way. I mean, we don't have everything figured out. But um, so I think that's where it could be shifted from a policy perspective. Right. Because we've seen we've seen, you know, the public health model is a good model. It's just there's not been enough emphasis. I don't I haven't seen on public mental health. Right. So we know how to get the message out about how to prevent disease or prevent, you know, for example, prevent STDs, things like that. Um, but I think the message about how to prevent a pre-existing mental health issue from getting worse is, is, is going to could have a big impact. So I think that's it, too, is not just looking at when can we help when when someone's already bleeding, uh, but what to help before they cut themselves, to use a metaphor. Right, right. Yeah. Well, we all know in this, in the midst of this pandemic that people, all, all of us have certain challenges and issues. And I always like to uh, turn this to a focus on our listeners and what, what they can be doing. Uh, as we know, you know, people around us, people that are uh, having to stay home, they're not able to be out and interact or they have specific needs and so on. And, and so there there's, there's issues out there that we're, we're not aware of, and they may not be at the level where professional care is needed or the, or they may be, but uh, on this point, uh, I wanted to ask you what people could be doing in general uh, that 
that show a, a higher awareness of the of the kinds of things that people could be struggling with during this time, and what and what are things that we all could be doing uh, that that help uh, in some way. It may be very very small or and 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 not not everything that someone needs, but there are ways to help bring. Uh, some of that uh, stability or that that care that the people need. Well, uh, the thing that comes to mind the most is, um, you know, part of this part of this whole thing is that we stigmatize each other, and uh, in terms of mental health, so we're not open to hearing each other's struggles a lot of times because it's so taboo. You know, um, so I think it really starts at a person to person level in being open to each other's experiences um, and challenges and and finding a place for community and, and listening. I mean, we can do it on an individual level for myself. So, for example, I could. You know, I could talk about how people, um, you know, may be really beneficial for people to attend to self. Right. So, you know, check in with your emotions, check in with the kinds of, you know, thoughts and distorted thinking that you do. But, you know, what I've really noticed is when people are feeling isolated, they're feeling alone in that. And if I'm feeling alone in that, it's not, it, you know, it does some good for me to pay attention to me, but it actually may make me feel more miserable than anything else. <laughs> so I really, you know, I think the place of compassion for each other and the place to opening up a space to say, you know, actually feeling depressed or feeling anxious or feeling suicidal is not a terrible thing. It's not a wrong thing. It's not a wrong thing to have, you know, anger or feelings of isolation or hopelessness. It's a, you know, so many of these experiences that seem stigmatized or taboo are completely normal human experiences. I mean, you know, it's sort of like when people, when people, um, get diagnosed with something like cancer. I mean, do friends shun them because they have cancer? No, typically people tend to provide support, right. you know, provide encouraging messages, you know, that's sort of lift, trying to lift the person's spirit. When someone has a chronic mental health issues, we, we, people tend to do the opposite. Right. Right. And, and so I think that's part of it is that how do we create a community of care, a community of compassion so that we don't feel so alone in this? Well, as we emphasize on this show, that that's so much connected to civic engagement of being aware of, of the community around you and what the needs are, which some may say, well, how does that connect to politics? Well, it, it does because it, it is about the quality of life it, and and. and and government and policy has so much to do with that. And so I just wanted to make, make that connection uh, as well. And, and we, we do this regularly of just trying to leave people with something that says, okay, what, what's my part or what's my role in this and understanding the broader uh, impact of these uh, of particular issues. Uh, Dr. Foster, I, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today. Uh, for those of you that maybe have joined us uh, since the show started, uh, Dr. Ryan Foster is an associate professor of counseling here at Tarleton State and also a practicing uh, psychotherapist. And I appreciate your time and the input that you've offered in helping us to understand this issue and some of the impact and challenges that, that we see uh, happening around us. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. We are going to take a quick break and we will be back with more on politics. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsay Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow, and we are glad you are joining us today. Uh, we were, uh, it was a great uh, pleasure to have Dr. Ryan Foster with us for the first half of the program. And if you missed any of that, you can certainly catch it on SoundCloud after this show airs today on KTRL 90.5 FM and streaming on tarletonradio.com. And I will also post some related articles uh, related to the topics that we discussed, focusing on mental health during the pandemic, and also looking a little bit at policy-related issues, the role of government in relation to mental health services, resources, and addressing those issues that, uh, as we talked about, are heightened in some sense because of uh, the crisis uh, that we're having with the pandemic. So that's part of a series as we've been covering a number of facets of public life and governance and policy areas related to the pandemic. We've looked at economic issues, we've looked at education, public health, domestic violence. Uh, so a number of issues on previous shows, and uh, I will put a collection of those together in terms of links to SoundCloud. If you'd like to go back and review some of those, listen to some of those interviews uh, that we've had uh, over the past uh, six to eight months. So here in the last uh, segment of the show today, I want to turn to the impeachment process that's going on. Of course, the trial is in the Senate now. And uh, I want to focus on this, not because that's what everybody is doing. That's where the focus is in terms of the outcome and, and what's going on. Uh, but there has been a lot of attention over the last uh, really month and a half given to the Republican Party and the future of the Republican Party in relation to uh, this impeachment process and, of course, the outcome of the 2020 election. And the focus here, again, as it is on the show, is not so much about um, taking one side or the other. It's looking at the dynamics that are going on within the political sphere and what is actually happening, uh, both in terms of the structure of governance and how it is functioning, uh, but also in terms of uh, both a historical context and looking at the, at the parties, uh, but also in and just looking at the different dynamics that have come together at this point, uh, as I've said a number of times in the study of political science, we're not about predicting the future. Uh, there is an area called applied politics where research is focused on finding answers or solutions to certain challenges. Uh, the other focus is theoretical politics, and that's just formulating hypotheses to gather information, to look at data about what has happened. Uh, but also in political science, there, there's a role here in helping people to understand the political dynamics that are going on. And so when you see out there in the media, when you see discussed, OK, what is the future of this or what is the future of that? Uh, we, we could show you multiple times and go back and say, oh, well, you have all these people saying this and predicting that uh, primarily in the media, not so much political scientists. There are some out there that, that do that as well, but they they, they are predicting things that are filling the air with possibilities, assumptions, and so on uh, that may, may never materialize. And, and that, that happens all the time because a lot of this is speculation and we don't know what's going to happen. How can we be for certain about where things are going to go when we don't know what we don't know? When we don't know what additional events and, and things may come up uh, in the near future that is going to impact uh, all of this. And so now we're seeing that here's a very prime example of it. The events of January 6th that led to the House voting to impeach President Trump for a second time. Now that process of the trial in the Senate is moving forward, not focused on removing him from office, but really focusing on the possibility of barring him from running for federal office or occupying federal office in the future. We, we didn't know this was going to happen. We didn't know that January 6th would happen. Uh, we couldn't predict that. Although, you know, there were a lot of things as people are now saying, there was a lot in the, uh, on social media, there was a lot saying that there was something going to happen uh, to the extent of what happened. I'm not sure that anyone could have predicted that, but we're, we're now responding to that. And that has added now a new dynamic to all of this related to the Republican Party. Uh, now, when I first came out talking about the impeachment process moving forward, as we saw it 
unfolding weeks ago. My uh, look at this from the the political side, from from the looking at the potential political outcomes, that it would have been better for the trial not to go forward. I, I presented evidence or, or not evidence and say, but I presented different facets of this that would say that it was in the best interest of Democrats, best interest of Republicans for this not to move forward. Uh, and, and one of the primary reasons for Democrats was the focus on the Biden agenda, uh, that that this would get uh wrapped up in terms of what Congress was trying to do and the Biden agenda and the things he was trying to accomplish in his first hundred days would get slowed down. And that could have some implications, not just now, but when we move to the 2022 midterm elections, uh, the trial is moving very quickly. I think that's the best outcome they can hope for at this point is to get through this quickly. Uh, and and think about it this way, and I did mention this on a previous show, uh, those are the people that have to decide. They're the ones that are looking at this in terms of the responsibility they have uh, to uphold the Constitution and to engage with something that has happened like this and determine what the direction should be. And so uh, on that part of it, I, I can't put myself in the place of a senator or even a member of the House and say, oh, OK, I would have voted or not voted for this. OK, I, I need to be in that role and have that responsibility. And I, I don't I don't have that responsibility. So I'm not going to fault anyone on either side for voting the way that they did uh, in taking that responsibility uh, seriously. Uh, now, I do want to to bring into this discussion, though, uh, the, the political side of this. OK, and that's why I said it earlier and initially in, in a previous show that it was better if the trial did not move forward because of this wide range of political outcomes. And one of those areas that I wanted to spend this time and focus on is related to the future of the Republican Party. There's been a lot of articles or, or different things out over the past few weeks looking at what's happening right now and how that connects with the future of the Republican Party because of the potential outcomes and, and just even the process itself. If you've been watching any of it, if you've been seeing any of the, the testimony uh, that's been offered by the, the, the defense for Donald Trump, as well as the, the team that's prosecuting on the part of the House, uh, they uh, there, there's a lot here. There's a lot of, of a, a lot going on. Uh, there's a lot that is challenging for people who are sitting in the Senate, for senators who are having to engage with this and determine uh, how they are going to vote. Uh, we got an initial taste of that when uh, the vote to say that this was constitutional to move forward, the procedural vote uh, happened and uh, six Republicans joined with Democrats and independents to to vote uh, for this to proceed. So that was an initial vote that some are saying, OK, this tests the waters to say, can they meet the uh, 17 vote threshold? So we're moving forward with this. But again, I think the focus here and this is very uh, dangerous, uncharted, challenging uh, waters for the Republican Party uh, politically uh, for a number of reasons. And, and, and I want to look at a couple of those and then quickly, I want to go over some of the outcomes. The reason is that if we look at the election, if we look at the close to, I think, 250 million that Trump raised after the election in order to contest it and to move forward with uh, where he wants to position himself politically. When we look at the polls that show that 17 percent of Republicans are for uh, barring him from office. Okay, so the other 83% are still supportive of either acquittal or of of the of this not even happening at all. So there's still a level of popularity out there that we don't know how long this will last. I think a lot of it will depend on the outcome of this process and then a lot of it will be on how this is spun after it if Trump is acquitted. How will he engage with the media and with people and so on uh, moving forward? Uh, so there's a couple of scenarios here that in, in this in this mix of things that I think are critical uh, because we're talking about very high stakes here in terms of the Republican Party. Um, 
one path forward, and, and now I'm basing this on looking back at, at at how these things have worked in political parties. Certainly not giving the, the same set of circumstances, but but how things work when you have time between elections. So one is that um, moderates among the Republicans, like Liz Cheney, like Mitt Romney, and, and others, um, they win out through this. Uh, they went out in that they began to to get more of the attention and the support, uh, not just in their among their constituents, but around the nation. Uh, and they try to recenter the party. And this is going to be very, very challenging. I, th- I think it's 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 very, very difficult to do this. Uh, in fact, I, I think it might only be possible uh, if if Trump's out of the picture, and we know he's not going to be, so I think it's going to be competing messages here of trying to recenter the party, and it depends on how much influence uh, Trump will have. Uh, the, the second one is that that the Republican Party splits, that that there's a third party that comes out of this and, and thus leading to kind of a collapse of the Republican Party as we know it. Uh, and again, I don't think this is very, uh, very likely because of the challenges of third parties in the past, because Republicans on a whole would probably agree that they're they're better off unified than they are having to compete against each other because the third party would be made up of Republicans. It would would not be um, uh, being able to pull enough constituents across the nation to be able to have a significant influence. Another is looking at this and moving forward is that the real strength of the Republican Party right now is one, yes, the support that Donald Trump has had uh, and how long that will last. The other side of it is when we look at the states, Democrats didn't make any gains really at the state level in this past election. And so once the census is finalized and redistricting begins, Republicans have the opportunity in a majority of states uh, to control those congressional boundaries, uh, to, uh, to, to, to really set themselves up, uh, not just on the state level, but on the national level for the next decade in terms of how uh, uh, how these seats will land and where where the where they will land, and so that's a source of of strength of the Republican Party that many may not be as well aware, but could be something that is becomes a major focus, especially if you see a party in the minority, not just now but through the midterm elections. Now, another alternative here, it relates to a couple of the others as well, would be that, and we've had some rumors about this, I don't know how legitimate we can say that these are, but that is that Trump is is convicted, that Trump is barred from office and he's removed from that level of influence. Now, that doesn't mean to say he won't have influence among supporters, uh, but this could push him out of the apparatus of the Republican Party, but it also could split the party uh, as well. And it could also mean uh, political misfortune for those that vote to convict him among Republicans. The other one, which I think is is much more likely in the slow moving world of politics, and, and I'm wrapping up here and I'll give more attention to this as we see the outcome, but that is that the Republican Party has a midterm strategy that is get through this, acquit Trump, focus on the 2022 uh, elections and what the possibilities are there and, and looking at how the Biden administration, whether how successful it is uh, in the coming months through the first 100 days and beyond, and then a 2024 strategy. How does that look between then and, and the, the election? It's too much time right now and not knowing what other outcomes, what other things may happen, whatever other issues may come up. I'll come back to that. I want to thank you for joining us today right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. Join us each week here Sundays at 12 noon for On Politics. Radio Network podcast with production from me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.